Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. There is hope. We got CDs and DVDs that we think you're gonna like. So come to New York and buy these CDs, these DVDs. Well, where do I buy these CDs, these DVDs? At GCDs and DVDs.com. Bye. Information is free. G, 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 take me away. G, 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 take me today. Welcome to episode 23. This episode, we talk to a psychiatrist, psychiatrist Ladon Shake. We get a scientific look inside the mind, but that's not the only thing we get. We get a lot of laughs. This is a fun one and a lot of insight. Looking into the mind in a different way. I learned a lot and I had a good time doing it. I hope you enjoy the conversation with me, Matt Kaplan, and Ladon Shake. Are you I'm gonna, I'm gonna have fun. You do what you want to do. All right. <laughs> so you're a psychiatrist. I certainly am. You have a medical degree. I do. You can uh, prescribe medications. Yes, I can. What did you bring us today? <laughs> I brought you everything you've ever wanted, Ooh. which is. No, I'm kidding. Pres- I didn't bring you anything. Oh, just really? me, just myself. You prescribe just you. Most of the time. How often do you prescribe medications for people? Oh, that's a great question. Um, Thank you. I would say about. We're done. <laughs> All right. That was simple. Um, I think I prescribe about eighty to ninety percent of the time. Yeah. Depends. You know, I work in two different places. I work in a city hospital that's very busy uh-huh. and um, I see sort of really severely mentally Ill, Ill patients okay. and then I also have a private practice which is very different so in How the private is... practice I don't prescribe as much Okay, so the people in the hospital that are seeing you are they in the hospital because they hurt themselves or others? well some of them 
But yeah. I see them in a clinic, so they come, they're free to leave after they see me. Okay. But um, I would say a certain percentage of them are, have certainly been suicidal or, or they've been aggressive. And then some of them just have long-term kind of issues with depression, psychosis, mm -hmm. bipolarity, substance use. So mm -hmm. most of the ones who are seeing me there tend to be, um, I would say, kind of from the community, very large community that we serve in Queens. It's a wonderful neighborhood of kind of multi-ethnic, multi but more sort of low-income, I would say. Okay. And most of them have been in the hospital or in the emergency room, and some of them know they just want to come for therapy or depression or sort of some personality stuff they want to work on. I imagine a lot of the depressed people are also addicts of some sort. A certain percentage, yes, but you'd be surprised. Also, not a lot. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, I would say maybe thirty-five percent have, okay. have co-occurring kind of substance use problems, but not all of them. I think some of them also just have problems with trauma, a lot of trauma. Trauma from their past, like trauma, the trauma from their past, from relationships, from when they were younger, like you said. Um, are there different kinds of depression? Oh, definitely. There's, so there's classically, there's like bipolar depression, which is very different from what we talk about as kind of neurotic depression. What can you tell us the differences? Um, I mean, in terms of how it would present, it might not be so different. It might be that you might see the same things. You might see someone who is sad, tearful, down, really has a hard time getting out of bed or functioning. And it's really different from someone who's just having a bad day or having a couple of bad days or, you know, just even like a, a breakup that's maybe sort of making them kind of have grieving. Right. So this is someone who's really affect affecting their function. Right. But with bipolar versus sort of unipolar, as we would call it, it's more, they tend, it tends to be part of a picture of mood changes. So it's, it's this other side of the coin where, you know, they go through periods where they're very alive, very expansive, very High large, highs, low lows. High highs, low lows. But the lows are a little different sometimes if you've been doing this for a long time uh -huh. versus someone who might be in the unipolar spectrum. Which you is, can tell the difference. Not always. It takes, it's very hard. But there are some things that are a little more common with someone who's bipolar. The depression might be deeper. It might be earlier. It might have some psychotic features to it, which... Sometimes unipolar does not. It might have an irritability to it that that you know unipolar stuff does not. Are there um, certain signs? Because uh, we know a lot of depressed people. Being artists, there's a yes. lot of depressed artists. Mm -hmm. How would I know if someone's depressed or bipolar? It would be really hard. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, you'd send them to someone like me. Or <laughs> I mean. I think you can't just talk to them and figure it out. It's not that simple. I right. think if you talk to them... Well, also because a lot of times people are trying to hide their depression or not face it themselves. And there's a lot of... That's where there's a lot of also subs, you know. So like people who sometimes take something to feel up, take something to feel like leveled and down. Right. So that's where you might see a lot of substance stuff. So you might see someone who... So if they're medicating themselves, it would be very hard for you to see it because you might they might have their stuff in between all of the substance stuff. So, you know, they might be like, I don't know, smoking weed to feel calm and, you know, less anxious. And then they might take some uppers or coke or amphetamines just to kind of be able to get out of the bed and do their thing. Right. So then it's really hard to figure out what it is. Is it just more that they like to kind of 
feel something. Because you've got to break through the chemical swirl to see yeah, that's faster. Yes, and you have to sort of see, is it just a wish to feel something, which is different from depression? Yeah, I had a friend uh, who, who became my roommate who was bipolar. And mm. when just as he was my friend, I just thought he was the most fun person in the world. Because whenever he was out, whenever I saw him, he would just do all the things that I wish I could be doing. Just acting, mm-hmm. just being very social, being very lively. And then once he became my roommate, I saw the other side of that where he just wouldn't leave his room for a few days at a time, wouldn't take care of himself. I'm like, oh, I get it now. Yeah, no, it can be really, really, really painful. Is that a bipolar situation? It can be. That sounds like it certainly can be. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Like, But it's shorter. It sounds like these were shorter ups and downs, like maybe a few days. Some people have months of one or the other. Months. Wow. Yeah, where they're really up and energetic and productive, but maybe they're a little irrationally productive like it's not all adding up no he wasn't like he you know was basically unemployed so when he was productive would just be like going around the city just like talking to people like making jokes and yeah, you know get getting into like little trouble and things like that right that's, so that's it's not really productive. like harnessing a lot of potentiality either it's sort of a little like expansive but and and fun and right large but it's not necessarily harnessed yeah, a lot of productive people can kind of thrive up that bipolar. When they're up, they're, when they're super up, productive. Yeah, but sometimes they also get into things that they never would have otherwise. They would they gamble, or they might have relationships with people they would never otherwise, or right. which can be beautiful, but maybe costly to them. Like it can be beautiful from the outside. You know, so many artists are bipolar. Would you say artists are more uh, tend to be more bipolar or more just depressives? I don't think I, I know the answer to that, but okay. I would say probably both. Okay, there's so, beauty to both, I think, in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, oh, it's really beautiful when someone can take their depression and turn it into something beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's your way of healing with it. I think. Mm-hmm. And I, I and I know. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I know some people that when they aren't so depressed anymore with treatment with us they kind of lament their pain that the fact that they can't kind of yes. go there anymore well because you know why because they're not feeling as much right and there's something to feeling deeply like that yeah yeah i know uh, one of my hardest times in my life it was terrible at the time but now when i look back at it it was kind of one of the best times of my life i you know i mean it's it's intense it's yeah. intense so you're feeling and it's not boring so maybe you create something really fantastic yeah i remember i and i did i was very heartbroken but i remember the air being having a richer smell and mm-hmm. taste and everything mm-hmm. was just so much more livid yeah vivid and uh yeah i recorded and made a lot of music at that time oh you did yeah i was That's able to wonderful. channel it yeah it's good so yeah there's there's i guess beauty to the pain you know in we, its own way yeah and this taps into art in a way why are people this is said a lot people can't create as much when they feel okay i think it's very true because then your narrative is just um not as poignant i think it's just more but it's also I the think, drive i yeah. think i think it's also though when you're Often when people are feeling good, they just want to engage in living in the moment, yeah. interacting with their friends and family. When you're creating, it's more insular. You're by yourself. Mm-hmm, so I think that's part of it as well. Right. So it's, I think it's isolative. And maybe the person isn't feeling as well, but they're doing incredible work. Right. Even you know? though, yeah. So whereas, you know, sometimes people will come if they're feeling better. And there's like months and weeks that go by and they're just like 
they don't have as much to report in a way. Sometimes when we've treated them, they have less to come and talk about. Right. So in a way, the work gets even less colorful. For you. Of course. Yeah. There's something beautiful to listen to sort of really intense stuff, you know? How do you... So if someone comes to you, you're, you just talk to them. Yeah. And you're trying to figure out what their depression is. Mm-hmm. A depressed person has come mm-hmm. to you. So you're figuring out why they're depressed or what kind of depressive they are? All of that. Uh-huh. Because there's, there's points to both of those. I mean, figuring out why they became depressed is really powerful for the person because they, that, that's something that means something very big to them. You Does know? every depressive have a reason that they became depressed or is it sometimes just chemical? I mean, I think they, there's definitely a subset that it's more chemical. Uh-huh. But I think even for those, there is some sort of space in which that, create, that happened versus at another time. I don't think it's completely random. I think even though I do believe there is, some people are very prone to it kind of biologically. Right. But the fact that it happened... Maybe when you were living in Ridgewood versus in Paris, uh-huh. I think says something. It speaks to something that was kind of activating you or maybe you know, putting you in a place where that could happen. So I think... You would tell people to move away from Ridgewood. <laughs> immediately. Move to Paris. <laughs> um, so I think, I mean, I do think it's... And especially, I think for so I'm I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the triggers were, what was the environment, because that means a lot to that person, right? In their internal makeup. So by asking questions, you find out where those trigger points are. Yes, and kind of, you know, it's it's sort of a journey together. You sort of spend time trying to deconstruct. It's sort of like having a suitcase, and it's full of like. Those old, I'm thinking of those old suitcases from like the 1950s full of like little stuff. So you open it up with them and you look at the stuff and you take it out and you shake it off. And they're like, wow, that yellow shirt, you know, that was really something. Right. So I think it's sort of this, this landscape you kind of paint together a little bit. And that's part of it. And then the other part is to try to figure out if I'm going to try to give people medication uh-huh. I definitely have to see what's going on in terms of just purely what is this that we're dealing with? Is it depression? Is it anxiety? Is it anger? Would someone have different reactions to the same thing? Like say um, I have uh, an uncle that passed away tragically young. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I think about him, I think how what a beautiful and amazing person he was. Mm. Then sometimes when I think about him, it makes me sad, and it's how, how tragic it was that he died so young mm-hmm. and left his family. So you're saying sometimes you feel happy that... I guess I'm not sure I understood that. You're saying say, some, say I had his yellow shirt. Yeah. I had his yellow shirt in that suitcase that we opened. Yes. And one day I might look at that yellow shirt and say, oh, what a great guy he was. Yeah. And feel good inside mm-hmm, about it. And mm-hmm. then another day I might look at it and be like, oh, it's just so tragic. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it points out to the fact that that suitcase is full of, full of different things. So one day you look at the yellow shirt and another day you see kind of maybe something else that like a watch or something. And, and it's like it brings a different piece of him to you. So I think everyone has multi dimensions to them. So that's why I think 
sort of the work is to craft that whole thing and to see, because nothing is that black and white. You know, you could, you know, like let's say for people who have trauma, you know, so they have maybe very, very beautiful feelings towards someone who traumatized them, but they also at the same time have so much rage and anger right? Yeah. towards what's happened. So it's like, and it's hard for you to sit with those things with the same person. Right. Because we want to have, these simpler kind of definitions, but oftentimes we don't. And it must be hard for you to sit with the person and discern which one is real, or maybe it's both. It's both. It's always both. It's always both. I mean, look, most of the work is not to find the truth. Uh -huh. It's really just to, by kind of looking at the stuff, uh -huh. the stuff shakes out Yeah, and, and sort of, the feelings kind of that were kind of stuck. You're shaking the bag and see what falls out. You're shaking a bag and you sort of <laughs> just that out, like moves things for people. So, for example, it's not so much that you sort of show them, oh, in fact, you really didn't like your father. It's more just that by them kind of spending the time to like process all the feelings, it becomes kind of a quieter um thing for them. It doesn't become so polarized. Uh -huh. And I think that helps the person feel better oftentimes. They, you lead them to their own realizations yes. and things. And their realization, it might not be this one-sided thing, but I think that is what that, that's what's therapeutic. How would you know when uh, a medication is needed mm -hmm. or when? That's a great, great question. I think it depends on to the person. Some people just cannot, some people can tolerate more, dis, you know, distress uh -huh. than others. But some people are really against medicines. So right. it, it's, a, it's a dialogue. But what's the yardstick? Is the yardstick like functionality? If you can function, yeah. then you don't need it? The yardstick has to do with... It's sort of like everything else in medicine. It's it's about it. It's it's around a discussion of how much. It's another tool medication to me. Mm -hmm. You know, some people want relief, and there's you know there's side effects to meds, right? And they're like, I don't care. I want relief, and I want it soon. And some people really are not even into any sort of experience that's outside of the domain that they're comfortable with, which might be I'm going to play music and, and, and hang out with my friends. Right. So, and it's, But it's not working for them. It's not working for them. So, I mean, there are times I don't prescribe because I absolutely don't think that's what they need. But there are a lot of people that I think the medication could help them for sleep for, or, you know, alleviating their depression. And then I tell them sort of this is sort of where we could go. But at the end, they have to decide whether that's what they want to do. Right. I also think sometimes I'm more confident that they really need it. Like if they're manic, I mean, that's not going to get better. It, no. it will cycle out. I mean, you, you if you don't medicate someone, they will potentially come out of it without medication. Right, because we're constantly changing chemically anyway. We are, but that has a price. It's like having a seizure. You went through a manic episode that is not great for your brain, frankly. Interesting, right. It's not that great to go through those ups and downs. I read this thing once that um, if someone is show if someone has well, mental issues, mm -hmm. maybe in their early 20s, yeah. 
it very rarely gets better. It almost always gets worse as with they time. get older with time. You know, that's there's debates about that. There's some people, like, if you tend to be, like, you know, your friend, like you were saying, you really have these ups and downs and mood swings. There is some evidence that there's a burnout towards the end of your life. A burnout, what do you mean? Meaning, like, your highs aren't as high, your lows aren't as lows. Right. Um, so, in some ways, it does get better. Okay. But having all of these episodes is not that fantastic. It's um, I imagine it's exhausting. It's exhausting. You maybe are, do things that you will regret. You might lose jobs. Lose jobs, lose you friends, lose relationships right. all the time. Right. So that's part of the yardstick of functionality. Yeah, where that's part of the yardstick. So if um, let, let's say someone's going to see a therapist, not a psychiatrist, yeah. and the therapist says, "Okay, I, 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 we should consider medication." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The therapist might uh, send a patient to you. Yeah. How much time do you spend with that patient, at, even though they're in you know weekly therapy with their their That's other great. psychologist? So it depends where I'm seeing them. If I'm seeing them in the hospital and and my roster is full, they might want me to see the patient in 15 minutes. Someone who might need 45 minutes of my time, frankly. Mm-hmm. In private practice, I tend to give them around 45 minutes. But for, for how long? How long before you say, okay, I've talked to this patient enough this many times, this many weeks. Gotcha. I, before I, feel, I give them medicine? Yeah, I feel confident that I can prescribe something. That's a really other awesome question. Um, I think it depends on the person. I generally, it's very depends on the practitioner. Some people can like to prescribe the first time. Could I do it? Yes, but I tend not to. I don't like doing that. I like to see the person. I think it's a commitment to do medication. I want to see really what's driving them for that. Is it? Are they going to come and return and see me, or have I send them off with a prescription? Are there subtle differences between what you would prescribe, like Zoloft, or um, I don't know, what are some of the other ones? You know, Cymbalta Paxil. or Paxil or Lexapro or right. There are subtle. Good thing, good thing you know them. I, 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 <laughs> yes, thank God. <laughs> how how often w- would you talk to the original therapist, or do you say most I just want to? Most of the time, I just most want a fresh start, or I just I'm you know like I most of the time want to speak to them. Okay, even if I want my own, if I always do my own assessment. Right, and sometimes they come to me saying I'm ready to take meds now, and I'm like, well, you got to, we got to start again a little bit. I don't just because someone else thinks you're ready to be here. That's not doesn't how I do a, a pass to cut the line. For me, no. Yeah. For some people, yes, and they get a little frustrated by that. But I'm the one who's prescribing, mm-hmm. right? So I tend to be a little bit more conservative. I would say I try to see them at least two to three times before I prescribe, especially if, unless they're really neat. I'll start them maybe with something really mild, just and, for sleep or anxiety, just to get them. And, and do you need to continue seeing them as long as they're taking the medication? Absolutely. Or, okay. So as, lo- so as long as they're taking the medication, they'll continue to see you and perhaps the they original therapist yes. as well. They have to. Um, they have to, yeah. Are there subtle differences between uh, Lexapro and all these others? That sure. You have? So there's subtle di- differences in people's depression? There are m- more than subtle differences in people's depression. But there's also, you know, the, it's, this is the art of the medicine. I mean, the pharmaceutical will come and... I mean, there's a part of you that has to wonder, do we need to have 15 SSRIs? Or is it just that the patent on the first one ran out and they're trying to make another one similar to it with a little tweak? Right, because that's when the companies make the big money. They have a certain amount of time where no one could make a generic of it. Gotcha. In this country, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's when the big money comes. So, So there is that. But having said that, there is differences between them. And mostly in the side effect. Like someone might be... 
get like sexual side effects on one of them. Right. Less so on another. May, might be really fatigued on one. And How much of a difference is that between the actual drug or just the person's synergy with it? The person's chemistry with it? Um, hmm. I think definitely the synergy is the most important part because some people don't have some of the side effects. It's like any, to any other... It's like taking a pair of running shoes. I'm like, man, this one's really like the arch is too high or something. Not that I run, but... <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one's like, no, this is just awesome and it's perfect. The support's perfect. And right. So it's really about that, even though they're almost all very similar in terms of what they do. And right. then there are some that are not similar and there are some that work very differently. And there's some that work on some people and not on others. Ab absolutely. And then there's some that affect this receptor, others that affect this receptor. Mm -hmm. So there's multiple things going on in the brain, you know? So, so with the side effects, my yeah. understanding is uh, lack of sexual drive, sexual yeah, dysfunction is very common. Very common. Are people working on that? Or are they like, all right, we can do this even better. We can make this guy feel better and still give him a hard on. You mean the companies? Yeah, yeah. Or the, the, yeah, the scientists. Honestly, I, I don't, this is like the bane. This is the bane of my medic, my existence for treatment of depression, unipolar depression. There are some. There's maybe one or two medications that don't give a lot of si sexual side effects. The other ones, a lot of them do. And frankly, I don't know why they haven't been able to. I know why they haven't because what tends to affect so it's the complexity of the brain. They haven't been able to find something that upregulates, let's say, serotonin. Mm -hmm. And too much serotonin can affect dopamine, and that dopamine is related to your sexual drive. So they haven't been able to craft something so elegant as the brain. Will you tell the listeners the difference between serotonin and dopamine? Well, so, so the brain is full of different what we call neurotransmitters. Right. They are things that are transmitted from one neuron to another, and that's how they speak to each other. Right, and they're sending these chemicals. They're sending these chemicals, and they're different ones in different parts of the brain, they speak to each other, and then it's sort of like if you're in a car and you're going by and you're kind of waving at each other, sort of like down this neuronic superhighway. Yeah. They kind of talk to each other. Right. So Hi, serotonin. Hi. So, yeah. So then what ends up happening is, so there's one of them is serotonin, there's norepinephrine, there is dopamine, there's, you know, GABA, you know, there's GABA, there's other ones. And, and this is what drugs do, not like pharmaceutical drugs, but recreational drugs will increase dopamine, spark your serotonin. Yes. The, well, the recreational drugs mostly work on sort of maybe the dopamine uh -huh. kind of specifically, because that's your reward center, that's your activation center, that's mm -hmm. your nuclear accumbens, like we call. So that's where you kind of get really jazzed up about something. So some people's brains aren't creating enough dopamine? That's part of it, yes. Okay. Or so they're not creating enough of what we call serotonin, which is another feel-good kind of... Um, that's the main feel-good, you know, if you want to call serotonin. it a neurotransmitter. Yes. So the meds will upregulate, push up expression of these things uh -huh. but that like we said with the car now imagine a car full of people driving down the like you know super highway and one car is full of people and then like maybe that's going <laughs> to affect another car because you know they're like 
overly loud and they're talking, which is kind of great, but then maybe some of the other cars don't have enough people in it. So that ends up kind of maybe down-regulating some other things. Yeah, the, the one car was listening to like a really mellow song, getting in the moment, and the other one comes blasting hip-hop by, just ruins the... It's not quite... I mean, that's not the best example <laughs> that I gave, but basically, they, it's not in a vacuum. It's not like we've given a, like serotonin and now everything functions well. Some parts of the brain, you don't want too much serotonin. Right, yeah. And that's what ends up happening. So then that can affect these other things, like your appetite... Um, other things that are kind of maybe some of the side effects. Would you then prescribe or suggest additional drugs? Like, oh, take a Cialis as well. They, you know, we do like sometimes. That. And mean, that doesn't like complicate things, too many drugs in the brain? It, I mean, it does. You know, there are definitely antidotes we have for like what you discussed, the sexual side effects. We do. There's Yohimbi, there's, you know, horny goat, you know, weed. Horny goat weed, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of different things, but... None of them work fantastically, and there are sometimes we augment with another medication. But I think what works the best from my experience is try to give the lowest, lowest amount of medication mm-hmm. possible and try to really work on these other things to help the person get through their depression, whether it's through exercise, social stuff, therapeutic work, meditation. Meditation's a big one probably, right? Everything is meditation, mindfulness. Mm-hmm. So Being how in do touch you, with your needs and self. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about this. So the difference between unipolar and bipolar, if someone yeah. is unipolar depressive, they may be able to figure out their chemicals without the medications? Or it's not as chemical, it's more thought-related? It's, it's not hard and fast. Some unipolar depressive people, are ve- they need the medicines just as fast. They do, okay. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. It depends how intense and severe it is. And is it caused by situations or the way their brain is? Both. I would say both. It's sort of like, I think of it as, so I don't know why, but I think of the brain as a little bit like our joints, even Uh though they're not similar, in that let's say you're a big skier. Yeah. And now you like to ski and you like to ski hard. Yeah. And you happen to be a little lax in your joints, and maybe your joints are a little sensitive. Uh huh. That combination can maybe make you have like a total rupture in your knee. But let's say someone else, like you said, is it the experience or is it the brain? Someone else might have that same knee, but let's say if they don't push it that hard. Right. They might kind of get a little injured here and there, but maybe they won't have as big a. A situation. Well, do you think do you think any sort of depression can be uh, cured or or not avoided even, or something avoided or just dealt with handled? I should say handled just with thought and mental. Absolutely. You think any any of it can? Not any. There are some. Some. It's sort of like that same thing with the knee injury. If you kind of went, if you kind of were in a bad situation and you were really traumatized, or you're really in a tough situation, and you happen to have a little bit more of a sensitive kind of nervous system in that part of the brain that takes care of mood yeah then maybe that combination boom blew out your knee Mm -hmm. because you were really in a bad situation and you had a sensitive but let's say you come in and yes you had a traumatic experience but maybe you're very resilient and your nervous system is not you're someone who doesn't have sort of that sensitivity maybe you'll be able to manage that and then you've got this other other set which is you know, 
they were really mindful and they noticed that they're very sensitive and maybe they avoided the situation that would have given them pain or maybe they did a lot of therapy early on. Right. And then instead of kind of getting themselves in a place of really bad pain, they may have just kind of dipped their foot in it, but then they retracted and they kind of healed on their own. So I think there is a fluidity to the system. Do you ever see anybody where you think that they don't... That sure you can give them medication, but maybe they can work handle it without yes, it all the time. All the time. All the time. How do you discern that? I work with a therapist or myself if I'm doing therapy with them. Uh huh. So we try to do that work. Where you know if they are going to the therapist and they're really still stuck, 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 or getting nowhere, that's when you're like, we gotta, we gotta add something on. Or if they come to you though and they're like, I'm really depressed. I'm really anxious but then you start talking to them and they get they start getting better and you realize it's more that they're grieving or they're sad or they're lonely or they're not tapping into their creativity sometimes the it's not about the meds right but it, sometimes it can be yeah you see, get a feel for it with time what looks really like someone who needs medication my only experience with meds mm -hmm. is seeing friends and people i know get off of them yeah and it's, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. It's yeah. super scary. Yeah. So that's the problem with the medicine, I find. So your body gets a little used to it. Yes. And it starts to freak out if it doesn't have it. Yeah. So if you're going to come off of it, it has to be done extremely slowly mm -hmm. with a lot of diligence. And sometimes some people are successful and sometimes, honestly, I can't do it. So that's, I don't know if it's a part of, you know, they won't tell me that, the pharmaceuticals. I don't know if it's part of what happened with introducing this molecule in there and now retracting from that, it just becomes really hard and that's something that was planned for. I don't know, I'm getting really kind of... Well, because your brain, like any drug, your well, there's two things. Mm -hmm. With any drug, you start to develop a tolerance mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. So it might be boosting your serotonin, but then you need more of it to well, keep that Well, that level. doesn't happen as much. And that's why okay. it's not a habit-forming medication, because you don't crave more of it. People aren't like, hey, throw me some Zoloft, man. <laughs> but is it just as potent as the first time? It can be. But the problem is... So... I mean, it's a very complex thing, but so it's not that people crave it and want more and want more. I'm not saying they're crave right. it. So I'm that's saying the that they part need that, it to, well, to get the same effect. The, some people don't. Some people okay. can be on the same dose forever. Because the friend I know, mm -hmm. uh, her doctor changed her medications. Because it stopped working. Yes. But that's different. It stops working and that's not just because of habituation. It can be sometimes, but, you know, maybe they're getting worse. Uh-huh. Um, it seemed like it was something that's happened before, like, oh, time to change up the meds, got to switch the whole thing up, and whoa, did they become a different person. Mm -hmm. When they went off the meds. Yeah, during the switch. Yeah, just... So the switch has to be done. If you're good, you have to do it very carefully. You can't just switch it around. So I don't know what happened in that picture. Right. Um, yeah, and I don't know that person's doctor either. Yeah, so. so, but definitely coming off of it is not easy. And that's why, I'm very, you know, you have to be really careful before you start someone on it. Yeah, I wish I could see, because my whole experience with people is when they're getting off of it, but they've already been on it. I don't really have no... Know what they were like before. Exactly. I would say that's probably the case for most people. Many people don't see the person before and then True. when they're on it. May I ask you about your thoughts on the pharmaceutical industry? <laughs> and uh, do you think that oh. 
Is this a, a tough topic for you? It is, you, but it's okay. Okay. Uh, are you worried you're going to offend someone? AstraZeneca? Or, no, I'm not uh, too worried. Just, just, I mean, I, I'm, I'm someone that sometimes can be maybe a little over paranoid about things like that, feeling like you the, should the, be. the pharmaceutical industry is controlling stuff, and maybe patients and yourself can be in a much better place if there wasn't so much money involved in this world. I think you're right. I mean, I don't know if everyone agrees with me, and I can't say that I am extensively knowledgeable in this area. But what I do know is... That the pharmaceutical companies are evil? <laughs> I mean, they do things that are amazing and that, like, some of, like, I have some new medications that are phenomenal for some things. I do. And I wonder if they never did any of it. And so their whole theory is, look, we make a lot of money, but we also put down a lot of early money for early research. It's true. And we don't get money back for like 10 years or so. It's true. It's almost like they're playing the lottery. They're hoping for the one big pill that hits it Right. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't know if that justifies the pill cost. Like I have medications that, you know, I give injections sometimes and one injection is over $1,000. Right. And like where is, are they getting this? And this is like to someone who's a schizophrenic who... Mm -hmm. I mean, it's twelve hundred dollars per pot, you know, per shot. And then you see countries like Brazil and India who do have pharmacy. You know, they're the pharmacies of the world. Like where you know you have to create a generic after I don't know a year or something like that of the medication. And perhaps it's not going to be the strength is not as good, the purity is not going to be as great. But it's available to the masses. Right. How how long do they get their patents? Uh, I don't. The Depends, but years. years. Years before anyone can make a challenger. Of course. Wow. So yeah, it's during those years. That Not they... to make a challenge, but yeah, to make the generic of it. So I mean, that medicine that I told you that's $1,000 a pop, it's already been out for like a couple of years. And there's no other... No way. It's the only one of its kind. Yes. So they have a monopoly on that. They have something that they're, yeah, they don't... It's, a, it's, it's not a monopoly. There are other ones like it, but... They can't. It's not that one. It's not. No the one same. can make that. It's a different and chemical. The, and the different chemical is not what I want. I want that one. Right. Because that's the one that works. You know. Yeah. So. Um, you want Pringles. You don't want potato chips. That's right. <laughs> you want I, each chip exactly. Is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're all really different. They I have mean, different flavors. Different flavors, and this one I can give in an injection that's going to be in your body for a month versus like a week. Mm. I mean, who wants to get four injections a month? Right. So, but you were asking. I do think they're a little evil because I sometimes wonder, like what you're saying, how come there hasn't been? I do think certain things are more of an agenda than others. I think if you're a, in the cancer world, you're going to get a lot of other more meds than someone who's schizophrenic. I really don't think anyone cares about certain things to make them a better drug and to make it this awesome thing. I wonder. Well, how does it work in Canada? I mean, they have pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. there that are... Mm -hmm. to, are we the only ones that come up with new cures? No, I mean, there's a lot in Europe. A lot in Europe, a right? A lot, yeah. And it's France pretty... Is, it, yeah, they make some really nice ones. Yes, they do. Some of this... Actually, we, the FDA, takes a lot longer than anywhere else to approve half of these meds that have been around the world. Oh, that's actually nice to hear. <laughs> it is and it isn't because, you know, the FDA is also not... I mean, their reasons for accepting or not accepting certain things is... is kind of ridiculous for example like in germany like natural drugs or herbal medicines are all regulated and they're very much taught in medical school in terms of how to use for example st john's worts or valerian or right. all these things they use them Here and we're they're not very pure to. 
Well, here we do, but the We're FDA has chosen. No, the FDA has chosen not to um, check for the purity of these things. And they actually recently, I read an article that they took like seven things off the shelves. One of CVS, GNC, and there, it was none of the things that they said it was advertising because there's actually no controls in it. So you can be selling any product. It's like selling a pair of faulty jeans or something. Right. People are paying twenty bucks for horny goat weed, and they're getting like dust mites. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> so, whereas in other countries, they've actually taken a stance and looked at that, and they're actually very much controlled. Like if they say it's point one percent of this, it's point one percent of this. That's Here, exactly the FDA right. doesn't want to get involved in that, and I think that's very political. I, I don't think it's so random. Okay, so how does it work? How does the system work in France where you said they come up with a lot of good new cures? I mean, I don't know the details of the, the patent situation there. Yeah. I do know there, there, there is some kind of, I just heard on the news, there was a mm-hmm. clinical drug there, like someone just died and a, oh, a, a that bunch one, of people yeah. were hospitalized, that so you know, maybe there yeah, does but need that's, to be a little more of a check going on. Yeah, but it's not like that's not happening here. That that we just don't hear about it. I don't know, the, maybe. No, the, you drug, about the pharmaceutical companies hush it. No, you hear about it all the time. It's something gets taken yeah. off. My yeah. mom was it on It happens here too. Yeah. It's just that it's, I mean... My mom was taking a pill for over a year, and then they pulled it off. It doesn't exist anymore, and mm-hmm. the company got sued. And Right. It happens here, too. It's just... Um... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I don't know. I think it can be... Um, I have my... There are, I think things could definitely be better. Let me put it that How way. do we make them better? What would you do? What could we do? I think there's, I mean, I don't, again, I don't know the exact historical facts behind this, but I do know, for example, I'll give you an example. There's a medication that I prescribe to to some of my patients all the time. Yeah. It's a very powerful medication and it's called Clozaril. It's a medicine for for very severe and resistant schizophrenia. Okay. It's not expensive. It's been around for a long time. In China, it's first line drug for severe schizophrenia, which is kind of the extreme in that. So here in this country, if you're going to be on this medication, they do extensive blood work, monthly blood work, all this stuff, which in theory could be a good thing, but there is also like these charts by which they check to see um, if if you should be taken off the medicine. However, Mm -hmm. that chart is not applicable to people who are of African origin in the sense that the blood count can, you know, accidentally sometimes get lower because of this medicine. However, a lot of people of African descent tend to have lower blood counts to begin with, and it's not pathological. So I can't tell you how many times, because of the rules of the FDA, I've had to take people off of this medicine and cause them to have a psychotic breakdown, which this was the most safe medicine for them, Uh just because... The FDA had not updated their guidelines, and they did it this year after, I think, 20 years. Wow. So they're slow. 
they're slow, they're inefficient. I don't know, they're bureaucratic. I don't, I don't really know what they're doing. You wouldn't go as far as saying there's a, a racist agenda. I, I don't think I'm, I'm going to say it like that there's an agenda, but I'm just saying I think they're probably clunky and old-fashioned. Like the Hep A virus, the Hep A vaccine had been around forever in Europe, and then like 10 years later, the U.S., accepted it right and i don't think it's because they were doing some massive and like deep work i think it's it's just clunky and not efficient well there's a cynical viewpoint with americans that money has to be the guiding force Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where in europe and i've been there several times it's you can have a great doctor that's not doing it because a doctor's profession makes a lot of money. Right. There's plenty of doctors that want to do it just because that's well, their I, calling. I, I, I think here it's the same thing. I, I think agree, most, yeah. most doctors are pure, and I think it's more of just the FDA, and, you know, or they have the hands in their pockets. Right, uh, I agree with, with, with you. With, you know, big business. The lobbyists. And, and the lobbyists and, and congressmen and, and women that are being controlled by these things, and they're all wrapped up in the money. I, I don't think it's the doctors. I think the doctors suffer as much as the patients and, and the public through this. I mean, the other thing is it's sort of where the money goes. I mean, like the hospital I work in, the public hospital I work, it's a fantastic place. It really is. But because the insurance companies reimburse very little, uh-huh. right. the offer for the, for, for the hospital to run, they, they were always in the negative and were being subsidized by the state. Right. And if there was some extra initiative to like put more money in terms of managing healthcare versus like guns, right? You know, the balance of that would be made. And instead of me spending 10, 15 minutes with my patients, I could spend 45 minutes. So the pharmaceutical But I industry- can't because they're telling us you need to see a certain number of patients for us to stay afloat. Right. And I don't blame them for it. I mean, they're inefficient too, but if the, the pharmaceutical. Priorities. If this, the pharmaceutical yeah. companies were charging less, well, that's not a pharmaceutical. Like, where's where, what's the expense? So, it's far, pharmaceutical is part of it, but it's also insurance. Insurance wants to pay fifteen dollars for a doctor's visit or twenty five dollars because they're a for profit business. Right. They're not going to pay, you know, the doctor who's trained two hundred dollars for them to sit there and try to give good care to my patient who's disenfranchised and poor. They don't care about that. They're like, this is what we think the service could cost should cost, whereas in reality it shouldn't cost that. It should cost. It should be more, and it should be that everyone gets proper health care, and yeah. that it sh- it should be more of a priority for this. So, where are the expenses coming from? Besides, I mean, you mentioned the twelve hundred dollars shot. Obviously, that's exorbitant. Oh, so the, so so imagine if you're going to run a clinic, a psychiatric clinic. There's nurses, right? There's staff staff that are checking paperwork. That yeah. are clinical staff. There's administrative staff. Yeah. There's the physicians. There's the Nurse practitioners, there's the therapist. These are really exorbitant things. Probably a lot of insurance is needed. So what happens is, you know, it's a really, I mean, think about it. We go and pay, for example, $70, $80, $100 to get your hair cut in the city. Uh And then you want to go to, and this is why people are frankly disappointed in physicians. And they'll go to the doctor and he's getting maybe seven, 10 bucks for the visit with you. That's why you walk out and you're like, man, the guy spent like five minutes with me. It's not mm-hmm. because he wants to spend five minutes. He wants to spend 45 minutes with you. Right. But they're telling him, you got to like see 15 people right now in the next hour. Yeah. Because it, because United Healthcare is paying $15 for this visit. Right. And United Healthcare really doesn't care about doing this right. They're like, at the end of the day, we got to 
look, there's reasons they get dinged too because a lot of people have mis- misused the healthcare system. False claims, yeah. Or just they go too much to see the doctor. Right. Or you go get an MRI and it costs $1,000 to do an MRI and the person who reads it, who really is the knowledge person who should be getting paid for, is getting paid like $100 to read it. Or Do you know what I mean? Whereas yes. the machine that was created, the guy who created the machine is making the money. It's a very kind of... How, and then it just comes a cycle. The, the doctors feel like they're losing out, yeah. so they keep like if you go if you go to a hospital, yeah. and you're staying there for for a few days, just you'll keep seeing all doctors just yeah. keep coming in to see you for five minutes, I just know. so they can bill the insurance, and it just becomes this big cycle of everybody's trying to catch up. Well, yeah, or they they have to see you because now everyone prefers everyone to a specialist, uh-huh. because there's also a litigation aspect to this too. So if mm-hmm. you come to the hospital and you've got a broken foot, and I kind of look at it and I'm like, I think it's just a broken foot, and you leave, and they're like, well, why didn't you have this guy, that guy, that guy come? So then it becomes also this thing where you're like, cover cover your butt. You got to cover your butt for you insurance gotta, reasons. So, so for for litigation, so yeah. that it's. My friend was in uh mm-hmm. my friend was in Germany mm-hmm. and he uh he had a problem and he had to get an emergency colonoscopy. And he went obviously he's American yeah. and he didn't have you know they just went and he was finished it was successful it was great and it was like 12 euro. That's the, that's what I hear. Because you know why they've decided that we are gonna healthcare is important to our society. Just like childcare is like all the northern European countries, yeah, like maternity leave is a year, right? Paternity leave in some of them is six months to a year. I like that. Yeah, I'm going to start fathering kids. Just <laughs> I, I think you should. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I don't know. I mean, I'm sitting here. I'm not like a healthcare economist, and I do right. think our population lends itself to like we have a Makes larger them, population. We do. Yeah, we have people with chronic illnesses because. We've sold them like supersized foods. Yeah. I mean, again, that's about money, right? Mm-hmm. You've decided that, okay, it costs, it's, it's, it's more costs, it, 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 it's more profitable right. to have a super gulp. So they also have tighter food regulations in I Europe. Mean, there's a certain amount of high fructose corn syrup. Yes, all of that. Yeah, there's, you don't find high fructose corn syrup very much. In and then Europe. the size is like one of the things, like, you know how when you go to Europe and like the Coke is so small or whatever? Yeah. But I think that was created in, in our psyche to kind of want the bigger one. But when they said that the producers sat down, the, 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 you know, the manufacturers, they realized you actually make more profit out of the bigger size than right. Coke. Because mm-hmm. it's still the same little syrup with like yeah, soda water. It's not the actual soda that costs money. It's yeah. the packaging and the distribution of it. Right. But so like if you can push the minimum to be bigger, yeah, then we make more money. But then everyone I think wait. I think a lot of it is cultural also. Yeah, it the is. way they food shop, they'll walk, they walk to the local small yeah. grocery store. They buy food just for the day or maybe the next day. Of and course. the fridges are smaller. Everything's yeah. just like more minimal. More minimal, yeah. Yeah. But I think that could be. Impl- I mean, look, so much is changing now. I feel. I mean, here, he- yeah. I think people are so much more aware than they used to be. Of people are more self-aware these days. Just of what they're gonna eat, like yeah, like reading. I mean, like of course, it's it's. it's not everyone is the neurotic kind of population, but just that how concerned people are about, I don't know, like, you know, bad carbs or 
right. you know, diet, diet exercise, exercise, mental health. That for sure. For sure. You've probably seen it. How long have you been practicing? So I've been a psychiatrist for about, how long has it been? If we include my training, it's been like 12, 13 years. Okay, so you're not even practicing anymore. You're doing it. I'm definitely doing it, yes. <laughs> I'm in the trenches there. Did you see any big difference in what you're doing once Obamacare was passed? You know, I or, haven't. Or not, not enough. Not, I haven't not seen enough. much. I mean, the part of it is I work for the city hospital, mm-hmm. and that was always there in terms right. of, I mean, I see a good proportion of people I see don't even are not even immigrants. They're not even they're not allowed. They're illegal um, residents. Have you seen a difference in the clientele? How the way that they feel towards mental health or their knowledge of it is different. I mean, New York has always been. That's why I came here. Has been very pro mental health. Uh huh. Have you start? Did you start in New York? I've lived in other places too. I, you know, I went to med school in Philly, and then I've lived in San Francisco and, and New York. I mean, there. I'd say New York and San Francisco are very um, psychologically minded cities. I mean, everyone talks about their therapists and their right, yeah, you know, what have you. But because it is kind of a luxury, it's well, these are more of the wealthy cities is, than Philadelphia. Yeah, and it's also the kind of people, like you said, the artists or creative types, which mm. kind of lean towards it, towards introspection. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's changed. Like the, I do think the change is more that you see the younger kind of, some of my younger patients, it's not even an issue for them that they're going to see a therapist. It's like, you know, you go to right. Williamsburg or Bushwick, it's like, I see a lot of young men, and we're used to seeing more women. Right. I see a lot of young men that come for therapy. Yeah. Was it, is that because it's more accepted or because yeah, men are going crazy more? <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, that's a good one. I think it's more accepted and maybe men are also kind of, I don't know. I think there is a more of a attunement that they have to their experience, perhaps in t- like being more in tune with their experience and that, that, that maybe that's not good or. Well, I can speak for personal experience because yeah. I've been a guy for a while. <laughs> and as a guy, you're kind of forced to, at least the way we're raised, is like you don't show emotion. Right. You bottle it all up. You just be tough and be the rock of support. Right, for everyone. Exactly. Who wants to be that? Sounds I like know. a lot of work. It is a lot of work. And yeah. I think maybe now there's a little bit more of a flexibility with that idea. Yes. And I think some men are kind of, I just wanted to come in because something wasn't, I, I didn't think that this was okay, that I was feeling this way, or I went through a breakup. And I mean, like you said, maybe even at the beginning of my training, I wouldn't see that as much. I think a, a big shift was from people seeing Woody Allen as the archetype of yeah. male kind of person that goes to see therapy to Tony Soprano. Once the Sopranos exactly. came out, like, oh, you can be a yeah. tough guy and get Oh, therapy. I know. That's such a great example. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. I mean, that was what was so shocking and intriguing yeah. about The Sopranos. I know, it was. And I had a lot of ideas. I mean, I didn't watch it all the time, but I remember thinking, that's not how therapy or psychiatry is when they were sitting and shooting the sessions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. But imagine Marlon Brando going. to. <laughs> I know. Can you? That would have been something, yeah. They should redo The Godfather like I that. I know, they really should. But, <laughs> I mean, I have definitely some young musicians uh-huh you know who just are you know in their early 20s 
Right. Are you more apprehensive to give medication to someone? A younger person? Yeah. Depends how young. Is what would you say? Because at, at what I mean, our chemistry is always changing. But when you're younger, it's changing more rapidly. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that was part of why I didn't want to do child psychiatry because there is a lot of notions of, there's a lot of treatment there with meds and I didn't feel comfortable, but certainly a lot of people do them and they feel, I mean, there's certain people who really benefit from it. But for me, I myself didn't want to do that. Right. I do, some, I do geriatric psychiatry sometimes. For your own conscience. Just, I, I've... I liked it. I enjoyed it. So meaning I do, I see some older patients that right. really need help, but I didn't feel, yeah, I didn't feel as comfortable, let's say, giving medications to a six-year-old, so a seven-year-old. What about someone in their early 20s, like you said? Yeah, I see a lot of patients. I don't feel necessarily uncomfortable with okay. that. Because, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You see also people who never went to someone in their 20s, and that wreaked a lot of havoc for them. They'll say like, I didn't do anything. I was, you know, or I lost all these opportunities or I avoided all these potential things that I could have relationships because I was so anxious. Right. And maybe if they would have gotten a little treatment earlier on, maybe that would have been enough for them to then do the therapeutic work of going out there and doing other stuff. So it's kind of a funny thing. Avoiding treatment for too long is not great either. Right, which brings me to a question about the older patients. Yeah. Are some of them just, okay, I'm dealing with old age, I'm dealing with loss of a spouse, with health issues, mm -hmm. or are some of them just like, I've been feeling this way for 85 years, and this is the first time I'm talking to someone about it? So you've hit a really soft... Uh, a geriatric depression or, or pain, is very painful to see, yeah. I find. Um, so I think... On a good note, they don't have to sit with it for that long. Yeah, but even when they're in it, it's really can be very pain. Like an older person who's yeah. in pain is really hard to watch, honestly. Um, yeah. But at the same time, when they get better, they get a lot better sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. And yeah. then what? So, what you will hear sometimes is their loved ones saying, Man, you know, dealing with mom was just has been so difficult the past 15 years, but now it's just so, so much better. We have so much fun together. We go out. She's not irritable since she, 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 she lost dad, you know. So you hear that. Um, and it is really different from just people who are, you know, coming to terms with their mortality. You sh there's not, a lot of people think, oh, well, he's old or she's old or they should be cranky. But it's not a, a fact. There's a lot of elderly people who are incredibly joyful. Right. So I actually think it's very much a disservice to them. And to their loved ones, yeah. to feel like that's the norm. It's really not to be, I mean, yes, to be in pain, perhaps, yes. To be Physical, grieving, yes. Right. But to really, you see a lot of incredibly productive, joyful older people. And I think it's really important to know that the norm is not to be irritable, sad, in bed, crying. That's what we see. That's the archetype. For some people, I mean, I actually, like, growing up, my grandparents were really happy people, but then uh -huh. I remember actually when I had come to the, I'm actually not originally from the States, but when I had came here, people were like, oh, I hated my grandparents. They were so mean. And I was like, what? Is, is that even possible? Where were your grandparents? Well, so my mom is half French and my dad's Iranian, but I grew up in Iran and my mom, my grandmother was French. Okay. And then the one on my dad's side was from Iran, but both of them were really kind of just sweet, kind, loving 
creatures. You and they were happy old people? They were happy old people. Where were they living? They were living in Tehran. Okay. Even my French grandmother. Yeah. Which is another story. Yeah. But I think it's... What was the secret to their happiness? Do you know? I think... Hmm. A lot of just acceptance and kind of going with the flow. And I mean, I don't know what was their full secret. But, you know... My my French grandmother had a huge family. So there's that too. Right. Nowadays, I think there's a lot of lack of sort of community and structure. Right. I mean, she had she lost her husband, but she was very much, you know, everyone knew her in the grocery store here or there. She was always dressed. Yeah. You know, she wasn't like, a, you know, hanging around in like her pajamas. And not, she was, she had, I mean, she had been through World War One, World War Two, the Iran-Iraq War. Wow. But she still was just very composed and put together and tough. You know, she, yeah, she just was just took care of things and but, you know made sure she's busy and she cooked and she went out and we saw her all the time and she talked to people. She was connected. Yeah, to Yeah, she community. was very connected to the community. See, they say um, the opposite of addiction mm-hmm. is connection. Oh, that's great! I love that. But I think a lot of times maybe the opposite of depression is connection. Absolutely. Too. I mean, without connection, there. We're social mammals. Yeah. We're not supposed to be these isolative creatures. We're, I mean, as much as we think, you know, we have a brain and it's introspective, we really are we need, social animals. We need We are. We're not yeah. meant to be like, you know, in total isolation. Yeah. I mean, besides, I mean, speaking for myself, I could see as I get older, mm-hmm. things kind of get easier in an angstful kind of way. Like in my 20s, I was very angstful. Mm. And things just like, eh, things don't mean as much. Mm-hmm. Things aren't as pressing. Yes. I would say barring like uh, physical discomfort right. or pain. Yeah. I could see being an old guy, like <laughs> kind of fine. Right. So you, know? you did your work. You did the work of introspection and maybe. I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't think it's done. You don't think it's done. Yeah. No. But um, they just youth, uh, legalized euthanasia. In mm. Oregon, I think. Yes. And um, is it Oregon or Washington? I forget. It might be Washington. Yeah, I don't know which one. Or it might, might be both. I'm not yeah. sure. But um, it's interesting because there's a documentary out that I watched. I made it through half. It's so dark. Is it? Which one is that? I forget what it's called, but it was on Netflix. It mm. might still be there. But um, it's a woman, and that's her job. You know, okay. she's she just goes, and she the family talks to her, and you know, she doesn't do it right away. It's not like you call, and then you're dead half an hour later when yeah, she shows yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure you have to think. You it's, have to work. It's a process. It's a process, and it's over several weeks. But these are people that have decided, hey, I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. Most of them are in physical pain. Yeah. But um, I don't know. Is that something... That, I do have feelings about that. Yeah. You probably have seen something pretty close to these people I've seen on the documentary. Well, so the people who really, the psychiatrists who really deal with a lot of that sort of end of life care or or the ones that work in the hosp- medical hospitals, um, I've definitely had exposure to that kind of work. You have, yeah. But for, for just part of my training. And I thought it was very hard for me because... It, it's it's funny because people, I don't find depression, working with depression that depressing. I don't find working with severely psychotic people, but I do find people who are really kind of committed to ending their life and it just becomes very kind of painful 
to right. watch because I do understand it logically, but there's a part of me that really kind of, for me, you know, the idea of being hopeful is really kind of important to me in yes. terms of the work I do. Sometimes that's all we have is the hope for the better future. And I tend to kind of really think things are going to get better or we're going to work on this or we're going to, and I think this idea that maybe we have to stop and, and I certainly know that I would not be comfortable being the person to determine if someone needs to kind of, this is it. And even though you're helping them, but I don't think I could be the active portion in that. I could maybe be help them and support them, but you know, I would not be someone who could administer. Yeah. There's no way I could do that. No, I wouldn't feel very good about it. But you know, then again, I have seen like people with severe, like, you know, I remember when I was doing even my medical, not psychiatric, my medical rotations, there was a patient who had severe kidney failure and he was delirious and confused because now the kidneys had shut down Mm -hmm. and the doctor, but this wasn't an end of life care measure. He just managed the going out part really beautifully. Like where they now really start withdrawing things. They maybe even give them a little bit more morphine so that they can ease the sort of breathing. And it can get better. No, like, and he died. The question was, the, the point was that he managed his death orchestrated. It's not like, it wasn't a harsh death. So like he no was pain. really already, de- yeah, he's already was very delirious, very confused. There was really nothing that they could do. So right. they start withdrawing care and then they give a little bit more morphine, which is sort of what ends up, you know, it's going to make you not breathe. Right. So that I think could be done and that's a beautiful thing. But the idea of like, oh, you're going to call me over and now you're suffering from severe cancer pain. I just, but that's, I'm not against it. I just don't think it's my calling. Well, because well, you're dealing with depressed people. Yeah. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, get better. Mm-hmm. I have. Or better. 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 Maybe not perfect, but better. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's what makes the work really palatable yeah. and interesting. Yeah. And people need to come to you to keep getting the medication. And people need to come to you when they get off the medication. So, so sometimes it's a negotiation. Like I have patients that, you know, they've been good for like a year and a half. And I'm like, do you want us to try to get you off the meds? And we, we do that. I always try to do that. Do Unless pe- I know it's not going to be a good idea. Right. Do you tell people when you give them and say, hey, this is you, just yeah. a temporary situation? I mean, if it's their first time on medications, I t- tend to tell them, you know. Mm-hmm. Usually I do at least a nine month to a year course on the medicines mm-hmm. so that you're in complete remission. And then we start chipping away. And some people will say, honestly, I don't want you to touch. So I, I don't want it. It's not worth it for me. I'm fine. It's not worth it for me to take. It's, it's a little bit of a negotiation. Right. But if it's a young person who's never tried to come off, I try to encourage for us to give it a trial at least. Is there a normal amount of time or standard amount of time? I would say nine months to a year before okay. you try. Now, and if you've been three times depressed and every time you've lost your job, we're not having that. It's, it's, it, it's like a pro and con decision. Like, yes, I can do it even for the fourth time. But I will say to you, look, the chances of this are not great. And if we get to a place where you're going to relapse, you know, right. then at least, because, you know, I really am very into autonomy of the patient, but there are mm-hmm. times that I'm like a little firm. And when you say relapse, you mean relapse into their depression, yes, into their, their depression. dysfunctionality. Just into their having symptoms again, or, you know, this, and, and you have to ask them, is that worth for you to kind of really get sad and down and be in pain and lose your job and... Do you, right. Do you think that's something chemical, or that person just isn't doing the work? When I think it's both, and it's partly what he was saying. I do think sometimes once once you've introduced the medicine, yeah. I don't. It's sort of like 
You know, I think that's the delicacy of the nervous system. It's not a very robustly regenerative system. Mm -hmm. So you have to realize once it's been a little bit mildly hurt, it doesn't rebounce back right. as quick as like I just got a little cut on my skin. So you, it, part of it is the work, part of it is exercise and all those other habits and behaviors, and part of it sometimes is medicine. Mm -hmm. And the role... The interaction of the medicine with the illness too, which is not so unidirectional. It's not like, okay, we plug it in and plug it out and it's exactly the same as before. Things have shifted now. Right. Well, well, do you think, you know, I was just thinking of it because you said, you know, like it's not the same thing as just cutting your skin. Like yeah. as we age, yeah. uh, we don't heal as quickly mm -hmm. physically. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about like prescribing drugs to someone younger. Do you, do you feel as though people as they get older they have a less chance of getting being, better. Getting better. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you see that they have less plasticity. So like mm -hmm. if you do get a geriatric, for example, patient who's really depressed, there's already evidence that antidepressants work a lot less well. Mm -hmm. Because now there's just none of, not as much plasticity in your neurons in that. It's just, and the same way that, you know, people, when they get older, they don't change their opinions. It's right. part of that plasticity. They can't. Right. Whereas, you know, you're a kid, you're just like, oh, okay, I'll try this this way, I'll try that that way. You know, we think of people as we age, they're just getting rigid, but in all honesty, the brain also doesn't, the neurons don't flow as open, like it gets a little stuck, mm -hmm. even biochemically. That, that highway doesn't have as many lanes. Exactly, and which is kind of sad, but I think we have to constantly make it as robust as possible. I really think the more we do of things, the more open it keeps those things. My, uh, I grew up, my father is a Christian scientist. Mm -hmm. Do you know this religion? I do, somewhat, yeah. Uh, Christian scientists, they don't go to doctors. They believe, yes. they don't take any medications yes, at all. Yes, I do know that. So I grew up with uh, mind over matter being mm -hmm. a very big thing yes. in my life. And it's something that I've seen demonstrated, you know, not perfectly but I've definitely seen it work. Mm -hmm. So I do believe in mind over matter, but I also believe that some people, you know, it's not going to work for everyone. That's really interesting. So what are some of the things you saw that were like a powerful example of that? Uh, I would say the most, I saw um, my dad have a stroke mm -hmm. and he just he didn't. Recovered. Yeah, completely and didn't go to the doctors at all. He's never been sick. Yeah. If he'd been, you know, just like he's never had any problems for many, many, many years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you know, he has to wear glasses and get cavities filled. Oh, right. so he'll see the dentist. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly that's mm -hmm. why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, I do believe, and you know, you hear about these tribes somewhere where they they grew up with the belief that as you get older, you get stronger. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've never actually seen it, but I've heard about it, and people live into their hundreds there no i mean they definitely think there's you know a big role in terms of also the perception of what an aging person i mean in this country people think of it as always a negative right because we grow up with that oh you're going to get old youth. and you're all going to be able to do anything right and, and that everything is youth that. whereas yeah. other cultures people can't wait to get old because that's when you're the most revered the most Respected, like, respect yeah. that it's mm -hmm. actually something to kind of covet. Well, a lot of that, to, just to tap it into what we were talking about before, a lot of that is money. You know, the, the consumer generation yeah, is 18 to 35. Uh, 
So everything in our society is geared towards that sp those spenders. Yeah, so Once you turn 35, you stop listening to new music. You've already got your pots and pans. You know, so, you, so, so all you're less important. You're less important. That big pot and pan industry. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is getting me depressed. Because <laughs> I'm over 35. Those, yeah. Meds for everyone. Good thing you brought all those meds. <laughs> oh man, I know. I could tell that you really know what you're talking about. Oh, thank you so much. I, I feel like I'm talking to a super professional. Oh, and, that's and, great, and that, you, that you care deeply. You're I do really care deeply. Thank you it, yeah. so much. You guys are super awesome. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for sharing thank all your you, wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for yours. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 